everyone, welcome to another Your Amigos podcast. Tom and I are honored to be here with Susan Sloan from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Today, we're going to talk about a relatively recent JCO paper uh, that came out looking at um, uh, Abby plus minus cabezataxel in, in metastatic CRPC and had some really interesting clinical data and also some great correlate work. So Susan, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'm just going to turn it over to you. Introduce yourself briefly and then maybe talk first about background of the study and i know the study was designed a while ago what was the background why did you do it and then we'll jump in from there great thanks very much for having me brian and tom good to see you both and uh, my name is susan sloven i am an attending physician and member genital urinary oncology service uh, at the sydney kidney sydney kimmel center for prostate and urologic cancers at memorial sloan kettering where i'm also associate vice chair of academic affairs and professor of medicine at wild cornell medical college so uh, on behalf of uh, all my collaborators uh, i'd like to give you a little background of uh, the work that we had done looking at abiraterone along with cabazitaxel versus abiraterone alone in uh, trying to determine whether or not there's a rationale for combination therapy in patients who are, have just failed or become metastatic castration resistant. So as uh, we were chatting earlier, you know, a lot of this uh, concept was really trying to uh, really come up with a means of treatment intensification. So this antedates some of the work from Fizazi and Smith looking at uh, this kind of tri-modality approach or dose intensification that we're now seeing with engine uh, deprivation therapy, chemotherapy, and one of the engine receptor signaling inhibitors. So that was our original desire, which was to see if we could come up with some means of uh, an early type of dose intensification and then to provide some mechanistic insight into uh, the rationale for the combination therapy. So a lot of the work that we've done has been predicated uh, based on the preclinical work in Karen Knutson's laboratory, where uh, she and her colleagues had uh, made, uh, I think, a very pivotal discovery that uh, RB loss was associated with the development of castration resistance in prostate cancer. A lot of the work was also further substantiated uh, in her lab looking at both tumor explants and uh, gene expression profiling that suggested that uh, disruption of RB function can result in ligand independent um, uh, and antagonist resistant antigen receptor, essentially. So based on that work and the fact that Rene Dulu had shown that cabazitaxel was in fact a better drug in terms of cytostatic effects and cytotoxic effects compared with docetaxel, the thought was, could we perhaps put these two drugs together, meaning abiraterone and knowing about RB loss? Could we regain RB function if we put the abiraterone and uh, uh, cabazitaxel together? And uh, could we come up with something a little bit more effective than the current uh, treatments? And so that actually provides the background. For yeah. one second. Um, yeah. So you chose cabazitaxel and not taxotere. We were talking a little bit Correct. before you went on air. It seems to me, just from a, you know my clinical lens, that 
Cabezatexel, like you say, is, is maybe a better drug. It just kind of got developed later and it seems to have struggled. And maybe talk a little bit more about that rationale about using that instead of a instead of Taxotere. You know, you bring up a very interesting point. When Cabezitaxel came out, everybody got very concerned. They were worried about neutropenia. And I have to tell you, we were very impressed that using Cabezitaxel in the first-line setting really had no accompanying toxicities. It was very well tolerated. We, I think, had one patient out of the 80 patients that we studied who had some neutropenia, but without fever. So, which was very, very encouraging. So I think you should pardon the expression, it got a bum rap uh, in the second line setting. And I think a lot of people actually felt that in the first line setting, this might've been a much more effective uh, drug. It also has less neurotoxicity. So the idea of neuropathy being less is also a very important selling point. So I think that this was the right drug to use, although we didn't know it at the time, but there was enough data, at least preclinically to suggest quote unquote, it was a better drug. Yeah, and I was so Susan, ask, you've got hormone. Yeah, you go, Brian. You go, Brian. You go. I was just going to ask you to maybe detail some of that preclinical that it was better in this setting, in the setting of RB loss or or P53 compared to a taxane. I agree with you clinically; it's just sort of struggled, and part of that was the timing of development. But well, I think a like lot this, of. Yeah, I mean, Rene Deleuze showed a lot of work uh, that supported the use of cabazitaxel using these explants. And she had used cabazi along with abiraterone and looked at the viability and, and death of these tumor tissues and found that the combination was uh, a very rational approach for looking at, at essentially cytotoxic effects, not cytostatic, but essentially cytotoxic. Uh, there are very distinct molecular uh, actions of cabazitaxel versus docetaxel. I mean, they're, they're, I mean I, if you go back to the original paper, there's at least nine or ten different uh, ways that cabazitaxel works that docetaxel doesn't work. You know, we're always busy worrying about the uh, polymerization of the microtubules, but there are very distinct uh, functions. Uh, suggesting that you can, that this is perhaps a more effective, if not better cytotoxic drug with lesser side effects compared with docetaxel. So there's an adequate science, if more than adequate science essentially behind using this drug at multiple levels. It also, you know, you put the, the patient or the cancer cells on a genotoxic stress, cabazitaxel clearly is a better drug when it comes to that. It provides that kind of impetus that you need to kill the cells. Susan, there's not that much background data previously. So essentially, it's a study. It's castrate-resistant prostate cancer. It's patients with Abbey plus or minus cabazitaxel. It's a randomized phase two study, yeah. um, modest, modest size, 80 patients. You've done biopsies in these patients, and you've looked for RB um, as a hypothesis for this, this analysis. There's also... There's not that much data with docetaxel in this space. So it's not like there is a comparative trial previously. Um, and, and therefore it's kind of, it, although you would have expected by now there to be triplet versus doublet in CRPC, there hasn't been that much data in this field before. Why haven't we seen studies like this previously? That's a very good question. I think the field started to bring together all of the standard androgen receptor signaling inhibitors, as you know, it was post-chemo, and they're bringing them all the way up front. And I think a lot of the emphasis was that we did not have sufficient uh, 
treatments for people who have de novo metastatic uh, hormone sensitive prostate cancer and that we had a plethora of drugs for the metastatic castration resistant. So I think most of the time, uh, most of the efforts were being brought now to the forefront as opposed to people who are now metastatic. We figured, well, we'll just move the hormones up. But again, the idea of intensification seemed to be more for the people at very, very high risk at the time of diagnosis as opposed to people who have failed. I think the, the, the current therapy was, well, you failed, so we just go on to the standards of care. And most of the emphasis now is trying to do genomic profiling and trying to get this dose intensification to people who really need it, particularly the Gleason 8, 9, 10, heavy tumor burden, high PSAs. And I think that's really what the emphasis had been. So Susan, there's some quirky bits in the trial design. The first is yes. that there was, a, there was a period off therapy for those patients who had been on LHRH for more than six months, there mm -hmm. was a washout period for four weeks where they had to have progression of disease. I haven't seen that in a lot of other trials. What's that washout period off, off LH about? The, the washout period was really to look for withdrawal essentially. And as I think you remember, 1993, you just stopped an anti-androgen or stopped a particular treatment, there was a PSA withdrawal response. And that's really what everybody was looking for. So you had to have continued PSA progression and or disease progression. So that's really what it uh, had to do. And Susan, talk about the, the main clinical results. I know in a randomized phase two, we're not supposed to compare the arms, but we always do. Um, well, Brian, it's very important to keep an eye. This is not truly a randomized trial. It's really not. There really are two separate groups of patients. And Susan Halliby uh, had uh, tried very, very hard to make people aware that this is not a direct comparison. They're just two separate trials that are being studied and evaluated. So the two, the two subgroups, of course, happens to be abiraterone with cabazzi or abiraterone and prednisone alone. So the I guess the pivotal point is that uh, the goal of the trial was to look at, uh, as primary endpoint, radiographic progression-free survival. Uh, I think just to encapsulize everything, uh, the most important thing was that in the combination arm of abiraterone and cabazitaxel at the beginning, overall survival was 24 and a half months with um, uh, radiographic progression-free survival that was 46.7 months, which was pretty uh, dramatic when you looked uh, and, and looked at the other group, which was specifically abiraterone and prednisone alone. And, and keep in mind that we based the where the hallmark would be on, uh, on two uh, trials that actually were benchmarked in terms of where the median progression, radiographic progression-free survival would be on just abiraterone alone, which was about 16.5 months based on two trials, one of which uh, came from Chuck Ryan. So interestingly, you know, there was some uh, concern on the part of one of the reviewers about regarding hazard ratios. And it's interesting, if you look at the radiographic progression-free survival hazard ratio was 0.56, overall survival 0.78, and, and um, uh, ESA progression-free survival 0.64 in the combination arm. And while you need to take these really under 
advisement because again, this is not truly a randomized trial. This is just data reporting on two groups that were done simultaneously with the idea of seeing, uh, looking for a signal and trying to do correlative studies to really get a sense of whether or not this is a viable approach for the common, you know, the, the, or I should say the current uh, landscape of prostate cancer, which as you know, is changing faster than the stock market. But your, you know, your your comments and Susan Hallaby's comments, you know, are you know noted. Um, I mean, the combination results are still impressive, and I think maybe, and correct me if you disagree, you know, lend evidence that we we need to be thinking about chemotherapy earlier in this disease. Again, the putting the sort of upfront triplet data aside for a second, right? Even if it's in this CRPC setting, that that Cabezi, you know, which I tend to sort of wait until patients are taxane refractory, and I. I probably don't use it as much as I should. And I, I guess I feel like these data, you know, lend evidence that it clearly is active. It's active in combination and and we need to think about using it earlier. Do you agree with that? I, I do agree with you. I, I don't know that, you know, we're in a different marketplace these days. Yeah. You know, we are now into the world of genomic profiling and how do you stratify patients based on BRCA? We've had multiple conferences, as you well know about this. I do think there is a role. I, I have to say that the patients who were on the trial and on the combination arm tolerated both drugs amazingly well and really felt that they had impacted on their disease. And the fact that people went to work after getting treatment was really unprecedented for us. I mean, it really was a, a really rapidly accruing trial, but patients did very well and they felt well. But I think that what, we're really, what we really were trying to do at uh, another level was really determine which patients would benefit from this approach. Just like treatment intensification, it's not for everybody who walks into your office. We really, or in renal cell, we know there are specific types of uh, renal cell cancers that do better than others. But here, what we were trying to find is a signal for which patient would benefit from this kind of approach. And if not this combination of drugs, then others. So that's really what the challenge remains to do. Susan, um, the PFS and the control arm was six months. The OS was 14 months. In the study arm, it was much longer than that. It, you That's know, correct. And, and that, those are median values. As you said, we're not supposed yes. to talk about the hazard ratios, but the hazard ratios, the Kaplan-Marr curves, look very, uh, very nice. Um, I guess the question is, did the control arm perform appropriately? Um, and were these results surprising to you? Because actually, when you look at the single-agent docetaxel results, they looked relatively modest when we did mm -hmm. docetaxel versus microzantrone back in the day. Um, so were you surprised by these results and were they more encouraging than you were expecting? They were more encouraging than I expected. You know, this was a proof of concept trial and we didn't know what we were going to expect. We assumed, you know, if you want to you know, reject the null hypothesis, we'd be saying that the combination arm was probably inferior to the, the, the single agent arm. But the reality was people, uh, we had people still going strong 48 months after, or 46 point something months uh, after, uh, you know, the trial was completed. They, they were doing extremely well. We still have patients, I think there's like five or six patients who are still alive and well. And uh, I would say that I personally did not expect to see a radiographic progression-free survival of uh, 46.7 months. I really thought it would be less. But again, uh, you don't know until you do the trial. And of course, this Susan. is phase two. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
you want to do you want to look at your you did some lovely biomarker data so rb yeah. wasn't a requirement to get into the study you looked yeah. at rb but you also looked at ctcs so yeah. do you want to just talk about what your biomarker data showed yeah, uh, you know, the idea here was could we, it, it, most people have RB loss, and when we did a lot of immunohistochemistry on some of the biopsies, and it turns out we could only do it on the lymph node, that bone had to be decalcified, and we were not able to see RB expression. So we looked for N-terminal AR, we looked for RB loss, but interestingly, most people were standing positive for RB, so that was number one. Number two, uh, that's on the, on the tissue. When we looked at the CTCs, again, looking for N-terminal uh, AR and uh, RB, there were definite technical issues. What we, we had pretreatment CTCs, at uh, I think the next one was at four weeks, and then I think there was another one, a third time point, maybe at eight weeks. But technically, there were uh, issues with getting the evaluation of the CTCs done. You know, when we had we hypothesized that we could do this in real time and immediately get an idea of who is benefiting. Could we see RB come back after it's been lost? And we were not able to do that in a uh, a means that was helpful. So in other words, we really don't know. We didn't see any, even from the data that we have, which was extremely limited, there were technical issues. The tissue very often, or the CTCs, did not uh, have the same quality from different institutions. So there's a significant challenge. But from the preliminary data that we had, at least at our institution, there did not seem to be a correlation between RPFS or OS with any of the biomarkers that we had ascertained. So in terms of where we go next from the biomarker standpoint, first of all, it's really hard work to do translational studies in a cooperative group trial like this, right? I mean, yeah. that's, you know, so congratulations on the effort. And maybe just to reiterate what you said, what did you learn? Have techniques advanced now? Is it is it more, you know, looking at NGS for RB loss or other techniques? You know, where if you were designing this trial now, let's assume the clinical question is still relevant. What, what sort of biomarker or biomarker selection techniques would you use? I think most of us would say that you know, circulating tumor DNA is certainly becoming much more of a, a sensitive marker, biomarker. And again, if we had to do this in the retrospectoscope, I think we'd probably be making sure that we had the genomic profile of all of these patients and know who had BRCA or ATM. And perhaps could we have a reasonable combination trial with one of the PARP inhibitors in, in the high-risk you know, BRCA population along with Cabazzi? I mean, there are different ways that we would know, I think, in the retrospectoscope to make this a lot more exciting than it is. Nevertheless, that being said, and it's spite of the limitations, uh, it does provide some insight into how these drugs work and what we need and what's, uh, you know, what could be very helpful in our patients who are newly castration resistant. Um, Susan, so um, Eric Small, friend of the show, came on maybe a couple of years ago. In the frontline setting, when the initial data of LHRH plus docetaxel versus the triplet with NHA came out, his position was actually LHRH plus Abby should have been the standard of care. And had it been the standard of care, triplet therapy may not have been so effective. He wasn't convinced by the addition of chemotherapy, of docetaxel chemotherapy onto the backbone of NHA, NHA plus LHRH agonists. This trial, although it's in CRPC and it's with a slightly different agent, 
this trial suggests when it's randomized phase two, but it, it does suggest that actually the addition of chemotherapy to this doublet backbone um, is actually, well, maybe, maybe um, active. Do you think we can extrapolate this small study in a different setting with a different drug into the frontline setting? Look, you know, when you think about it, it's an excellent question. When you think about it, for people with, are you talking about frontline de novo hormone sensitive? All yes, I, can, I am, Susan. I mean, I'm miles yeah. off piece. I'm miles off piece. I'm in the woods. I'm in the woods. <laughs> okay. <getting> dark. <laughs> no, I, I, all I can tell you is, you know, we have seven different treatments. If you start off with just ADT alone and ADT plus the ARSIs and the combination, it's really seven things to choose from. I'm not sure that people would welcome one more, you know, combination therapy. Uh, there, you know, it, it's very interesting. It, uh, the younger doctors these days, the first thing they go to is, oh, we, you know, somebody's de novo metastatic, we must go directly to this, uh, uh, this uh, intensification approach. And if you ask them why, the statement is, well, it's the standard of care. And that automatically frightens me because the first thing we should be doing with any of our patients is looking at the biology of the cancer. And I think probably you and, and Brian of all people would understand that biology really tells us what is the best drug. It's not that you just take a drug and give it. You've got to look at a lot of different parameters for the tumor. And I think in prostate, we are very lucky because as the disease changes, its biology changes, it almost becomes predictable after a while. If you look at the dynamic process by which prostate starts to evolve into castration resistant to the neuroendocrine, et cetera. So to answer your question, it, it, it's hard to see another combination in there because we have so many. And I don't know that we really understand where to use these drugs. I do. I personally do not do dose intensification the moment someone presents de novo with hormone-sensitive disease. I, I look at the volume of the disease. I look at the comorbidities. There's a lot of things that I will look at before I go with intensification. But the problem is, every time a new drug comes out, we forget about what are very good drugs, and we jump on the new bandwagon. And that does end up sometimes biting us So it sounds like... Way. I mean, it sounds like I think to answer Tom's question, it's these data aren't convincing you to intensify more with triplets in the frontline setting. No, it does not. Yeah. It, it's one of many different approaches, sure. but again, it should be custom tailored to the patient. I, I don't. I think we're a little too broad sometimes, but I think you have to give it a little bit of thought. Susan, my it's, last. I yeah, was uh, Susan. I was much more positive about your data than you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, usually the negative one. My my statement, you know, to be honest with you, Tom, you know, the question is, you know, if um, uh, how many more mouse traps do we need? I think this provides a, a, a proof of concept that if we can identify patients more rigidly who would benefit from these intensification approaches, then I'd say, fine, if this is the best regimen for a patient who has XYZ, I'd be the first one to say, let's take that into the first line setting. But right now, all the intensification programs are just broad. So if we can figure out which people benefit from each type of intensification, then essentially we're profiling the patients for a particular therapy, and that's where it would be very, very beneficial. Yeah. And that's what we all think want to do. My last question is just about trial conduct. I think this trial started accrual about nine years ago. I think it took about five over years. six, yeah. Yeah. So um, and this is, you know, somewhat typical in the cooperative groups, right? These trials are really hard to do. They can take a long time. And as you say, the landscape changes sort of under your feet. So it's an unfair question, but how do we do a better job of that? How do we accrue these really important translational clinical translational trials? 
quicker in a cooperative group and answer questions that you know industry is not going to answer. I mean, this is not this was not a formal cooperative group, as you know. It's just two or three. It was three three or four academic centers, totally, or three uh, other than Memorial. A lot of it had to do with the accrual. This ended up being the heaviest accruer was at Memorial. And we had U.S. Oncology, we had Cornell, and we had Jefferson. That that was the family, so okay. to speak. And the uh, I think we were best equipped to do a lot of the correlatives and and get things moving along very very quickly. Most of, of the issues, of course, nowadays you're dealing with big time pharma, big studies, and I think there is more support than these smaller studies that we've been doing, although the phase twos, I think, are very, very important. Uh, I think the problem with a lot of the phase twos is sometimes we extrapolate that this is going to be a real hit and then it gets approved, you know, as an interim approval and then you do the phase three and it's a dud. So as far as I'm concerned, one is one should always be very circumspect about one's enthusiasm. Hence, Tom, I not wanting to go crazy in the first line setting. So uh, can we do it better? I don't know, Brian, you you and Tom have done a lot of very, very big trials. I don't know if there's a right answer here. I think you really if you're going to do correlatives, you really need, number one, a lot of money. And you need people who are dedicated in the laboratory who will just be doing this one after another after another to get the data going. This idea of biobanking and then going back and looking, while beneficial in terms of getting specimens, the question is, what do you do afterward? I mean, it, it, the, the field moves uh, along very quickly, and then you're struggling to do the biomarkers, which may or may not be applicable anymore. And that's really the Susan, problem. Can... It takes time. I can yeah. I completely agree. This retrospective biomarker tissue banking ten years down the line, the hetero I think those days I agree, I feel those days are behind us. And and, and I think the prospective biomarkers play an important, incredibly important role. I've got two questions. The first is on biomarkers. Um, um with um HRR and PARP inhibition, um where do where do you stand with that? Do you think those patients are more responsive to chemotherapy? And do you think that PARP inhibition and the chemotherapy responders have an overlap? And did you have the opportunity to look at these biomarkers in your study? The answer is we did not have the opportunity. We uh, certainly could have done it, but the uh, at that time, uh, MSK's impact was not up and running to the extent that it is now, which you know is our, our uh, genomic profiling platform. So that was number one. Number two, uh, none of the other institutions were able to do it with any level of regularity. So that was another thing. The other, other part, of course, was the money to from insurance to cover a lot of the genomic profiling, but it was not very popular. And if you're talking about that it's all those years ago, it's only recently that we're doing this as standard. Now, the question is, you know, is this something that is good for all comers? I mean, I, I still think that if you are, you have a particular genomic alteration, your BRCA or HRR, there is a specific role for the PARP inhibitors. If you don't, I personally, and this goes to the meeting at ESMO and, and ASCO, I personally don't think it should be used for everybody. I think you go where the money is for the most desirous population and you do that. And 
you know, the biomarkers with genomic profiling should be done. And I think they're requisite now for just about every trial. And if you can find novel biomarkers to really guide your therapy, you're, you're I think, going to be home free. It's just going to take a lot of work. And we're still discovering new biomarkers just every, every day of the week. There's something new that's popping up in the literature. And I think having a panel and knowing what to look for and then hoping in real time, as you mentioned, Tom, that really would be very helpful. Storing everything in the freezer and then having bad DNA specimens and cells that are lysing is just not the way to go. Susan, no. I'm just, I, I think you answered this question already, but I might be, I'm at Malpensa Airport in Milan. And I might be getting out of a taxi when you answer it. That's okay. it, is <laughs> it is an important question. Yeah. So look, are we using the wrong drug in prostate cancer? We use more docetaxel, we use frontline docetaxel, not carbazitaxel. That's mainly because of the way the drugs were developed rather than because of activity. We haven't got head-to-head -head activity. Most patients don't get second-line chemotherapy. You said at the beginning, I think I heard you, that you feel strongly that carbazitaxel is a more active drug than docetaxel, yes. although they're not head-to-head -head trials. Yes. Are, we using the wrong, are we using the wrong drug? Um, you know, in the scheme of life, the problem is that these are drugs that were cultivated by the pharmaceutical industry. And I don't know in, in the current world in which we live that there would be a head-to-head -head between Kabazi and Dosi. Many years ago, you may remember when, I guess it was 19, was it what, 2004 that um, Aventis brought Docetaxel into the world. Everybody's wondering, should they do a comparative study with Paclitaxel? And at the end of the day, it was they're two very similar drugs. There was no financial benefit in doing that. Here, again, I'm sure industry would say there is no real reason or there's no motivation to do that. Do I think it's a better drug for the reasons that I mentioned earlier? The answer is yes. Would I prefer to use it? Yes. But I don't know that industry would support that, nor do I know even if the FDA would want to even sit down and look at a trial to even investigate that. Yeah, I think it's something that would probably have to be done in the cooperative group if, if it's going to be yeah, done at all. But exactly. Susan, Susan, this has been great. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for your insights. Thanks for uh, it's been magic, Susan. Paper. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're we at the loved airport. It. We loved it. <laughs> yes. Thanks so very much. It's going much. really well. There's a strike. There's a strike in Italy, so I'm struggling a little bit, but it's going to be okay. Oh, you poor <laughs> thing. I'm so Tom. It was nice of you yeah, to get on Tom. the horn. All right. No, don't. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. My plane's going to take off. It's going to be good. Um, okay. Susan, good. see you super soon. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Ditto. Thank you, Brian. Right. Bye bye. Continue, Brian. Take care. Bye bye. bye.